Our Psychology Month series continues today with a professor and a student who are getting involved in their local community in London, Ontario. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. The overdose epidemic has become much worse since the COVID-19 pandemic began. I work with an organization in Ottawa that helps homeless youth, and since the beginning of 2020, we've experienced more overdoses and way more death than we had in the previous decade. There are many factors, of course, besides the pandemic itself. Housing is more difficult to afford, inflation makes everything less accessible, and social supports have not increased to meet the demand. But the most catastrophic thing is the drug supply itself, which is getting more and more dangerous. Any effort to help people experiencing homelessness and the frontline staff that support them is important and welcome. So let's meet two people who are doing just that. My name's Leora Schwartzman. I'm a, an associate professor of psychology at Western University. I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. I'm involved in the clinical training of our students, but I also, for the past seven years or so, have been teaching at the undergraduate level two project-based community-engaged learning courses, social science in the community and community psychology. What drew me to that was a growing feeling a desire to make a difference in the community, but also a recognition that in at least in clinical or we tend to be very focused at the individual and that we we talk about sociocultural factors, but those end up not being a target. And what appealed to me about community psychology was you look at people in context. You look at the the the, the reciprocal relationship between the individual and the broader environment in which they operate. And community psychology is unabashed, unabashed about <laughs> certain values that it has. It's focused on equity. It's focused on community involvement. It advocates for social justice. It values evidence-based decision-making. There are certain principles and values that are guiding, that guide an example is also, there's a free community psychology text. It's a bunch of community psychologies got together and they decided, and they got their institution to, to support this, my students don't pay for their textbook. And it's not a surprise that it's a community psychology textbook because oh. accessibility is really important. And so these people are lovely and they very are very much interested. I have been wanting to make a difference and to and through my work really have an impact on the local community. And so this course allowed me to do that. So that's my initial introduction about myself. Maybe we can go to Nardine and then we can take it from there. Yes, I, Nardine, does that make you one of the recipients of the free textbook when you introduce yourself? Please let us know. It does make me a recipient of the free textbook. It was a very good textbook. So I am a fifth year undergraduate student at Western University, hopefully my last year. I am in the honor specialization in psychology program, and I am an aspiring clinical psychologist. So what really drew me to the course, what specifically the social science in the community course, was the applied aspect of the course and kind of the opportunity to make a difference in the community. I think that a lot of research is very objective, and this was the opportunity to kind of apply that research and be 
in the problem as it happens, kind of experience it in a way that you don't get to usually, at least at the undergraduate level, and take what I'd learned in my psychology courses and see if I could apply it. But mainly, again, it, it's just to kind of serve the community, to quote Dr. Schwartzman. The community doesn't serve me. I serve the community. So that's what really like drew me to the course, the opportunity to make a difference. I have been in London for the past five years. I feel like I've grown up in London because it's the point of my maturity. I came here when I was a freshly new adult, and now I am turning 23 this year. So I think having the opportunity to make a difference at such a young age, at such an early stage, I guess, in my career, in a way that I think, again, is non-traditional, but offers so much opportunity to learn from individuals uh, with firsthand experience of problems, was something that I saw that was very valuable. No, that's terrific. And uh, I think there is, there's obviously a lot of value in being involved directly with the community. That seems to be the genesis of this course and this initiative. So Dr. Schwartzman, how does that work in a nuts and bolts sort of way? I remember I worked for many organizations before I was with the, the CPA, and there were a lot of university courses that would want to be involved with those organizations. Uh, I worked with a group called Operation Come Home in Ottawa. It's a homeless youth charity, also with the Dementia Society. We'd go in and we'd make presentations, maybe a marketing class, maybe a, you know, maybe a psychology class or maybe a business class. A lot of the time, in fact, for, our, uh, for Operation Come Home, the homeless youth charity, it would be a criminology classes where they would start to, you know, they would take on a community initiative. So how does that work? Do they make those presentations to your class? Do you seek them out ahead of time? Uh, Do the students look for the opportunity themselves? So the way it works for me is, and also I have a colleague in psychology, Riley Hinson, who teaches a very similar course to mine. His is called Addictions Theory and Research. And in fact, we hold some classes together this year, especially, is We work in the summer before the class starts with the community agencies to identify the projects that our students are going to be working on. And so, and often these are agencies or groups because we've been teaching this for a long time. We already have a pre-existing relationship with, but sometimes not. And if we don't and it's something new, then we need time to develop that relationship and get a sense of what they're looking for and for them to have an understanding of what we want our students to get out of doing this. So it's not simply volunteer work. It's not only, it's a special kind of community service. It's through applied scholarship. So our students, for instance, are not, you know, organizing fundraisers or they're they're not going and volunteering for the sake of just volunteering. What they're doing is they're helping an agency respond to a given need. Uh, this year, some students in one of my classes are writing grants, are scouting out granting agencies and writing drafts of grants that the agency can use to get funding. Like that's a real application and doing a program evaluation to help that agency include data and evidence for the success of their program to be included in the grant. You know what? That really speaks to me. That sounds pretty amazing. I know that actual grant writing, grant applications, and all of that process, it can be so overwhelming, especially for a small agency trying to shoehorn their programs into what they need to, them to be in order to get such and such a grant. Uh, so that's an excellent initiative. And Nardine, what was your initiative and what what organizations were you working with? For my project, we partnered up with 
various organizations in London that deal with or work with individuals, sorry, that are precariously housed or homeless, and specifically working to address improving the overdose response in London. So that is what, what like the immediate response. So um, what, what do you do when somebody is experiencing an overdose or the aftermath response? So that means dealing with helping a person who's just experienced an overdose, individuals who are exposed to the overdose, and the trauma that's associated with those situations. And the two organizations that we kind of mainly spoke with and kept in contact with were Youth Opportunities Unlimited and Unity Project. And I was specifically involved in the aftermath response. That aspect really spoke to me because I saw an opportunity to apply psychological concepts. So something, I guess, my expertise, not I wouldn't say expertise, my minimal knowledge in the area to this aspect of the project. And I guess, in essence, my passion would be to kind of help individuals deal with that trauma and kind of overcome as much desire to kind of put themselves back in that. I wouldn't say desire to put themselves in that situation, but desire to do things that would risk them going back into the overdose situation. When you're doing that uh, research, are you there in the building, uh, the Youth Opportunities Unlimited building, the Unity building? Are you on the street talking to people? You know, where physically are you doing this work from? So as much as I would have, it would have been amazing to kind of get more of that firsthand experience coming fresh kind of out of the pandemic. There was still hesitation to do that. And because the, our project was relatively new, it was still fresh. We focused more working with staff, but even that at a distance, we were more communicating with the leaders of these organizations. So we had a few meetings with, so the heads of these organizations, and they kind of brought forth and were advocating for the needs of their organizations and what they perceived as key problems in their responses. This was broadly. So more of our contact and our research happens through a survey we designed from scratch, (laughs) which was quite difficult, but I think very rewarding because there was a really good reception from staff and the leaders at these organizations. So I would count that as a big win and something that was rewarding, I guess, to us to know that we'd done a good job at that. And we wanted to make sure that the survey had open-ended opportunities for these individuals to kind of speak for their experiences and not just is this something that you do? Yes or no? Like we didn't want those close-ended kind of typical survey questions because that really wasn't what we were trying to get at. It was an aspect, but I would say it was a smaller aspect rather than kind of understanding the experiences of these individuals. So when you're saying these individuals, right, you said that the survey, you're dealing with the leaders of the organizations and the staff. Is the survey for the staff? Is the survey for people who are using drugs? Or is the survey for people who are experiencing homelessness? I mean, who is the survey designed for in in the first iteration? So, like I mentioned, this was kind of the start of this, trying to improve this overdose response. So we, as a group, were very passionate and we wanted to make difference. But for feasibility's sake and trying to kind of make as much difference in the small time frame that we had, we decided to focus on the workers um, and staff just because the, from the recent pandemic, there was like these frontline workers and like appreciating our frontline workers. Personally, I never saw anything that was looking at like mental health worker, addictions workers, despite the fact that the stats are telling us that post pandemic, the overdose crisis has increased, homelessness and precarious housing has increased. So the demand at 
on these workers has increased. And without that appreciation, it's all, I, I would imagine it would be demotivating to continue doing what you're doing, especially when I guess the government isn't really providing you with the supports to kind of stay uplifted and keep persevering in essence. So we did focus on staff, but we, to incorporate some of their perspectives and to set future students up to take the perspectives of the precarious house and the homeless that were at these organizations. We asked for their input about future questions that could be posed to these individuals because their perspective is valuable. And of course, we're walking in from a place where we lack that lived experience. And we luckily, most of us, I don't want to speak for the rest of my group, but from our conversations, we are privileged and haven't had to experience seeing an overdose, experiencing an overdose ourselves or being homeless. So we wanted those perspectives. Just to pick up that these projects tend to build on each other year after year. And what happened is two of Nardine's classmates and groupmates who were quite interested in continuing this, they ended up both applying for a summer university research fellowship. And they worked with me and somebody in faculty of health sciences, put in an ethics protocol. And based on the insight that they got from their classmates, they actually interviewed people who were the clients of these agencies. They did they did qualitative interviews. That was done over the summer. What they then did is they presented their findings to the people who they interviewed to find out whether they were on the right track. They then presented those findings, what they've learned to staff at the agencies. And once it's gone through both of those vetting processes, those students are coming back and they're going to be giving a presentation to the students this year with on, on what they've learned from, um, from, the, from the perspective of clients. And so, and that then is going to build on the project that the students are working on this year. Yeah, and I think that's great. So these are sort of, a lot of these are more long-term projects, yeah. right? And you certainly don't want to, you know, do a research study uh, on, say, a homeless population or the population of people who use drugs without including those people in it. So yeah, I think yeah. it's good that you've, you know, taken it to them right away. I'm wondering can, how... Can I, sorry, can I just interject? We're calling these research studies, but let's not call them research studies. That what we are doing is, I mean, yes, that for this particular project, the students got ethics approval. But what our students are doing is doing continuous quality improvement or are largely services for agencies that they wouldn't... So we're not coming in with a research question. We're almost increasing the capacity of these agencies to be able to do their own quality assessment and assurance and moving forward. So I, I just want to be clear that they're using students are using their their research skills and they're applied. But I wouldn't call these sometimes they turn out to be research projects. And if we think that's going to be the case, we get ethical approval. But these are really mostly student projects in the service of helping continuous quality improvement. Yes, I think this is I think this is a distinction that for most people, it's I think it's one that comes in an academic space, right? The distinction okay. between doing research that results in a paper and research that results in an actual change or improvement to an organization, right? The two things are both research, but they're done with different goals and different purposes in mind. So in this case, how does the student get matched up with the group that they're going to be work, working with? How does that happen like in a nuts and bolts way in the classroom? 
Okay. So as I said, we go into the, by the time the, the course outline is finalized in September, for each project, I try to have about a one page or three quarter page description that where the students say, okay, this is the context. This is, this is, this is the context or this is the problem that this project is designed to solve. This is the help that the agency needs. And what they're looking for you at the very end, which is the deliverable, this is what they, they want to get out of their association with our class. And based on my best knowledge, these are the kinds of activities that you as a student are going to be engaging in, the kind of research, you know, will you be devising a questionnaire? What are the kinds of activities that you're going to be engaging in to help produce this deliverable? So the students go into the class, not when I interview them, but by the fall, they know what the projects are. And then in the second class, the community partners come in and the students then get a chance to actually meet the people that they might be working with. And so they give a presentation and then we do a speed dating session where the students go from table to table to table and they meet uh, the different community partners. And after that, the students rate, rank order their projects. And the community partners also let me know what student they'd like to be working with. And so on that basis, we come up with them. It's a matchmaking if you will, service. Yes, and, it's um, a, a combination of speed dating and rank choice voting, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so students end up like, and like other students don't necessarily come in and say, I want to work with my friend. Like sometimes they know each other, sometimes they don't. What dictates the groups are, or the questions and the kinds of activities that students are going to be engaging in. And because of that, and because the students, I, I, I'm, I may want to say this, that this course is not for everybody. This course is not for every student. And I know this is a podcast on students making a difference in the community. But if the right students don't go out, and they don't go out with the right motivation, and they don't do it with the support, then number one, they may not make such a good difference. And the investment that the community has to put into supporting students' learning is not worth it. It's really important to select, for me, to select the right students. But I just finished a week of meeting now with all the partners and saying, how's the students' progress? What can we do? So it requires a lot of attention to maximize student success and to maximize their learning, but also maximize the product and the, the return of investment that the agencies are putting in. And it, it's a major investment on their part because they're understaffed and they don't have much time. And any hour they spend with my student is like, that is precious time. So they better, I want them to get their money's worth. Um, Absolutely. Now you talked about uh, students having to have the right motivation. So Nardine, I'm going to turn to you. What was your motivation to take this on in particular? All the projects were very interesting. It was a hard choice, but I think again, the speed dating situation, the chemistry was there with my community partners. Um, I saw their passion and I saw how it, it was clear that they would value it and that they just wanted like they want, I want, I wanted to kind of match their passion. I felt that with that project, that was the right direction for me. That was what I was interested in. I've always been interested in addictions and serving underserved populations, helping them. And the home I'd seen homelessness within the London community on the rise within the five years that I've been in London. So it wasn't something that was foreign and it was something that I wanted to 
trying to make a difference for and serve my community and hopefully improve something for these individuals or individuals who are deal, like, kind of helping deal with this cir- these circumstances. I would say it, it was kind of an easy choice almost just because as soon as I talked to the community partners, it was kind of an easy choice, I think. Even with terms of, I think you can kind of tell the style and the approach of someone um, when dealing with, I guess, students, but they kind of, tre- they treated us as equals, despite the fact that they are much more experienced with their own circumstances and their own problem. But they spoke to us not only as like undergraduate students, but almost as professionals. And I think that just motivated us, or at least myself, it motivated me more to kind of work with them and trying to solve this problem. And you mentioned that in the last five years, you've noticed an increase uh, in London in the number of homeless people. Obviously, organizations around the world uh, dealing with homelessness and with addiction and drug use have noticed a massive increase in drug overdose deaths and overdoses in general in that time. For a variety of factors, of course, uh, you know, the pandemic was a big one, but also the drugs themselves are becoming more dangerous. There's an awful lot more uh, risk and danger than there used to be. So when you completed your survey and you completed this, you're going to be handing this off to the next group of students. Where are you now with these organizations that, you know, where are you that you weren't at when you first got together with that organization? Um, so we kind of started off, I guess, doing exactly what Dr. Schwartzman intended us to do, using our scholarship, using whatever skills we'd learned in our undergraduate to kind of use our research skills to kind of understand the problem from a research perspective, but then also combining that with the community's perspective and our community partners. So that would include the typical Google Scholar search, just Google in general, trying to find as many perspectives as possible on the problem. Also, I guess broadly looking even at the U.S., but trying to focus that on Canada and then looking at our community partners and their the policies they provided us. So how did they approach the overdose response across the um like corporations that are dealing with this. And then from that, we went and we compiled what we considered inconsistencies amongst these policies and turned to the literature then to see, well, what what does research say works? What What are these organizations doing to respond? And of course, you have to consider then their capacity to change and their capacity to even help these individuals. Obviously, some organizations are more funded, they have more space, and in general, they have more opportunities to, for example, have a safe injection site or provide naloxone kits and such. So we had to take those things into consideration and just meeting with the leaders of these organizations. They provided us perspectives on specific issues to target within our survey. So we were really probing those questions. And at the end, kind of provided, I'll call it a next step deliverable because we set, we wanted to set up the next class that would take over this project from us with success. So although we did compile some resources, specifically with dealing with the trauma that comes with uh, overdoses, specifically for staff, as we mentioned, we also asked for their perspectives to generate questions for the homeless and precariously housed so we could get those considerations, as well as just highlighting those inconsistencies, uh, future approaches, and then where future classes could kind of look for more resource guidance and policy recommendations. And that was kind of what we compiled at the end. And it was a pretty, I can't remember how many pages, but a pretty long deliverable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, uh, Dr. Schwartzman, right? Uh, About the next group of students that are going to be taking, you know, the ball and running from here, right? They're going to be doing this research. 
They're going to be doing a survey with the questions that Nardine and her colleagues have compiled to speak with the precariously housed people, with the homeless population, right? One, a very notoriously difficult group to actually pin down and, and, and talk to, right? We always talk about these point in time counts that cities do to determine how many people are experiencing homelessness, how many people are precariously housed. But nobody has ever been able to say that they're definitive numbers by any stretch because it's such a difficult actual yeah process to undertake. So what do you tell the next student who's going to be taking on this particular project? Well, just so there, there were a subgroup, there were two students in Nardine's group who decided they wanted to take it on, take the insights that their larger group got from talking to staff about what kinds of questions you would ask people who are precariously housed. They got ethics approval. They got summer research fellowships. And they spent their summer getting ethical approval and then early part of the fall actually interviewing people. They have presented their results to the participants themselves, the people they interviewed, to make sure that they've actually captured what, what they've heard. They then have presented those findings to the staff at the agencies. And once they're confident about that, they are then coming to my students my class this year and are presenting their findings. So we have we have that. Um, the students this year are collecting information from more agencies than Nardine's group was able to get information from. There are far more because we've brought in Indwell. It's, it's an agency in town that actually create supportive housing and then youth opportunities unlimited through them we've been and the students have sent requests to get even more policies i think um chuck who we both chuck is one of the inspirational her she has to be mentioned chuck lazenby is the executive director of the unity project and it was really chuck who started this whole thing in September or summer of, of 2020, she got all the executive directors of these agencies together and she says, what the, and she swears. So anyway, <laughs> what the what, um, what are we doing about this? Everybody's dying. Can we share policies? What? How can we help each other? And then she contacted me and said, I understand. And I had, had always wanted to work with Chuck and I never had a chance to, but it was through my contacts at Youth Opportunities Unlimited who said, oh, Lior is teaching a course and maybe those students can do this for collectively the agents. That was the genesis of the project. So this year, the students are collecting even more information for more agencies, and they are then going to interview, not do surveys, of staff, the frontline staff, to identify, okay, these are the policies. Do they work on the ground? What are the difficulties in implementing these policies? How could they be tweaked? That's number one. To, to, to point on what Nordine was talking about, we always talk about best practices in psychology, right? Like best practice, the gold standard. Chuck throws that out the window. She says, not best practices, wise practices. It's sort of what can you do with what you have? And so it's this idea of, I think the students this year are going to come back with a more of a sort of an, an analyzed set of policies and say, if you're an agency that has these resources, 
then these are the kinds of things you can do. And these are the kinds of things that work. But if you're an agency that only has two people and you can't do this and this and this, what are the approaches? So it's sort of tailoring the recommendations. They're not even recommendations, but putting it out and saying, what's ideal, but also what's realistic. And I think that that's the one thing that students come to when you go out and you do on the ground knowledge transfer, like real research out in the work. The question is what's ideal and then what's actually doable. And so I think that's what the students are going to be working on on that particular project this year. I've got one final question for each of you, and I'm doing this to bridge to our next episode. Our next episode actually is going to be about homelessness as well. We've got another student uh, who started a podcast to help homeless people in Toronto. And the professor at the University of Toronto, who's running this class of psychology undergrads, is doing a very similar thing, right? Getting involved with community organizations in that area, uh, but kind of doing it the opposite way where, okay, you're the student, you figure out how best to help this organization, and you go in there and you sit with them and spend some time until you can figure out the best way that you can help, and then we're going to do it that way. So, Dr. Schwartzman, I'm just wondering what was the genesis of the idea, you know, the reason that you've chosen to do it the way that you do, which is picking the organizations, figuring out what they need, and then presenting those options to the students uh, in that direct align. I want to make sure that the organizations are well served. And, uh, you know, it takes a lot of skill and wisdom. I mean, I've been around for a while. I'm not sure that a student necessarily would be able to see the big picture as as efficiently and sort of say, these are the kinds of things. And they may take bite off more than they can chew. I know what's within students' capabilities. I know how I can guide them. I have a sense of what the scope of a project is that's going to be challenging enough, but also doable. And I can have the kinds of very targeted conversations, especially when I'm working with a new, like I can have three or four meetings over the course of a summer with a new community partner so that I understand what they're about, what they need. And we, it, it can take a long time to figure out a doable project that is actually going to serve them. So for me, if that's already pre-digested, then it frees the students up to go and work on that project. And then I know that the students are addressing a question and delivering something that the agency needs. And so I prefer to do that um, upfront work, recognizing though, as the students would say, things change and a project description in September isn't necessarily how the project unfolds and has played out. We're not a slave to that, but it does at least start them off, everybody on the same page with the map. It's it's a jump start, and it's a way for me to be more certain that my students are going to be able to deliver something useful. And Nardine, you did deliver something useful and you've made it through this uh, class, this very elite class that not too many people get invited to participate in. Where do you go from here? Uh, How has this experience changed the way you look at psychology and maybe the future of your career? First of all, I hope it was useful. <laughs> Can't speak for the community partners. They seemed happy. Chuck but... did say that you, you exceeded her expectations. So it was very useful. <laughs> Glad to hear. Yeah, it was. It, I think, first of all, I have to say it was a very rewarding experience and a rewarding opportunity. Um, personally, I think, again, again, it's not something you get to do every day. Where do I go next and how does this inform what I want to do? Part of, I guess, a, another part of why I 
took this course was I hope to work with vulnerable populations and solve problems, maybe not to such a large scale, but being a clinical psychologist entails kind of everyday problem solving, maybe more at the individual level, but with individuals who you might not completely understand their perspective, but kind of promoting the fact that I have this strong desire to help and showing me that I have this ability for problem solving and creative thinking and taking a problem and not making it my own, but taking my perspective, somebody else's perspective and kind of finding a way to solve that problem, at least to the best of my abilities in a way that I can help someone. And it's empowering to me to know that I can make a difference, even I guess at some, a small level, obviously the project wasn't finished my, like during my year, but knowing that I could make that difference was amazing. So definitely, like, I definitely want to work with vulnerable populations. I want to keep doing similar work. That's been confirmed. And also another thing I have, I feel like needs to be highlighted is the importance of interdisciplinary work. Because one of the reasons I really valued social science in the community specifically was that it wasn't just psychology students. It was individuals across various disciplines and having those various perspectives kind of, I guess, put me in check because I feel like it's psychology. It feels like it's a psychology problem, but then you realize it's not a psychology problem. It's an everybody problem. Like now I actually volunteer at um, Parkwood Mental Institute um, and the team there is interdisciplinary. You have social workers, you have occupational therapists, you have psychologists, psychiatrists, and the value that you gain from interdisciplinary approach. I think it's in my future, I want to be able to work with different individuals and have those perspectives because Although it can cause conflict at times, I think there's so much value in having those different opinions, um, especially when you're working on a problem that you may not know everything about. Thanks to Dr. Leora Schwartzman and Nardine Yalda, both for the work they're doing and for coming on Mindful to talk about it. And thanks to you at home for listening, streaming, and downloading this episode. Join us next week as we talk homelessness once again, this time with a student who has started a podcast to help people experiencing homelessness in Toronto. Mindful was written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bowman. Our editor and producer is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor.